Would you turn with me first uh, to the book of Luke? I want to give it just a bit of background uh, because Acts that we'll be in for the next couple of weeks is book two, okay? So I'd like to read the introduction from book one, which is Luke. So Luke, Acts were written, both books, by Luke. Luke actually wrote more the New Testament than anybody else. They estimate 27%. You can do your own count. Um, <laughs> um, so, obviously, incredibly important. And I think uh, if you've never read the Bible before, uh, a great place to start, the best place, perhaps, is Luke, and then read Acts after that. Luke gives you the background of Jesus, as no other uh, book does, the narratives of his birth and that kind of thing, some amazing sections like the prodigal son and others that you won't find elsewhere. Great book to start with and just go straight from Luke to Acts and you get a history of the church as well. So that's a great framework for reading the rest of the New Testament. So here is uh, Luke and uh, in this introduction that we'll, we'll see uh, how this introduction is continued at the first of Acts, okay? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, by the way, I'm sorry, page 855, if you're uh, using the book that's in the pew, the, the Bible in the pew, that blue book, I'm sorry, page 855. <clears throat> Let me start again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here are the things accomplished delivered by the original eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And those things, some have written narratives, Luke's joining them to write a narrative himself. And the purpose is to have certainty for Theophilus, uh, to have certainty concerning the things he's already been taught. So, Luke, now to turn over to Acts chapter 1, where we will study. This is on page 909, 909. So the way our books are set up, John is between Luke and Acts, which is not the best arrangement. However, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of form a, a unit called the Synoptic Gospels. Those that are seen from kind of the same viewpoint, John is very different than all three. That's why it's grouped that way. So, But Luke and Acts should be considered uh, two parts of one book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And it speaks of them returning to Jerusalem after that. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let us pray again as we come to his word. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to see the truths of Scripture, to see what you have set here for us, for our benefit, for our growth in grace, for our comfort, for our faith, for our strength, for our becoming more like Christ and being used as instruments in Christ's hands. O oh Lord, bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. I'm reading this uh, history of England, and it's really sad to see how two times, at least so far, the whole civilization of England was completely wiped out by barbarians. Uh, later, it's Christian, very thoroughly uh, Christian civilization wiped out by the Vikings, um, But earlier, the Roman civilization, which was Christian as well, but uh, maybe not as thoroughgoing, but the Roman civilization uh, that lasted until about 400 was wiped out by the Saxons and Angles. Angle from, that's what Britannia became the next 200 years because civilization was wiped out and there was no uh, recorded history at the time. Nobody read or write of these barbarians that took over uh, Britannia, as it was known in the Roman Empire. And Britannia was lost and it became England, uh, the land of the Angles. Uh, and didn't really get Britain back until 1707 when uh, Wales and, and Ireland and uh, England joined together as Britain and took that old name. And uh, So at this time, though, when civilization was wiped out during the uh, 5th century, the 400s, um, There was, as I say, no recorded history, but about 100, 200 years later, uh, evangelism occurred, came to England, and uh, these warlike Angles and Saxons began to be converted, some of the chiefs. And then when chiefs were converted, their peoples, and there burst out a flowering of culture and scholarship and uh, the like that had hardly was well, well, it was one of the main places in all of Europe. Uh, amazing things that were produced in England. And among those, uh, a remarkable history written by one who's called the Venerable Bede. Um, and this history, uh, ecclesiastical history of the English people, was 
an, a benchmark for, certainly for English history, but a benchmark for history in general. It was became known over the whole of uh, Christendom, over the whole of the empire at that point uh, of Europe. Uh, because of its rigor and its exactness. He researched documents. He uh, did uh, documents back in Rome and ransacked everywhere he could find in England because he wanted documentary evidence to try to say, okay, this is what happened when England fell because nobody really knew, you see. And then this is how it was began to be restored when Christians began evangelizing. All this, which is probably too long to say this... <clears throat> He is the one who came up with A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. He's the one that began dating from the year of Christ, as he best could figure it out. And we've had that ever since. So he redefined history in terms of the birth of Christ. And I want to underscore that because we must get this inside of our heads, and as I'm going to say, A.D. indeed for us, that uh, Christ uh, defines history beginning, especially at this point, of his ascension into heaven. You take all of the work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and reign, as one piece, really, And this is what changed the whole course of history and redefined the meaning of history. And indeed, it is history post-Christ that has never been the same. And the question we want to ask ourselves, how do we live in light of that ascension? Now, there are many, many things to be said that are scattered throughout the New Testament. And I want to confine uh, my uh, thoughts to what we find here. What was Luke trying to get across to us of the essential, critical nature of the ascension? <clears throat> and here's an opening statement that I want to unlock. Uh, in, in the hope of the glory of his reign and in the power of his spirit, okay, in the hope of the glory of his reign and the power of his spirit, we bear witness to him in all we do and say until he comes. So we have two hopes, the glorious reign, the pouring out of the Spirit. And in that context and in that hope of his reign and his Spirit, we bear witness in all that we do and say until he comes again. That's fundamentally how Luke wants to define this uh, ascension of Christ and the meaning of the work of the church. So let's first look at the glory of his reign. One aspect of this is found in that this is one story, part A and part B. That's why I had us read Luke chapter 1. So we're to understand, and the language that he uses when he says uh, he began to do, the things that he began to do and teach in verse 1, most commentators would say this is an indication that what he began to do in the first book, Luke, he continues to do in the second book, Acts but in a different way. He did one personally, hands-on, as it were, bodily present on earth. The next work he does, that's nonetheless his work, he does by means of his spirit empowering his witnesses and agents, his own people. But it's nonetheless the work of Christ that is accomplished. You can see pieces of this uh, Throughout Acts, just to name two, in the 
outpouring of the Spirit when Peter was preaching in chapter 2, verse 33. He says, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see his point. Jesus is exalted and what you see happening right now, He did that. He has accomplished this. He is acting. He is moving out at this point by the Spirit. And and what you see is Christ. Uh, Later, we are told when Paul, his first missionary journey, was going in a certain direction, or second missionary journey, when he was going in a certain direction, he got moved to a different direction. uh, And it said the Spirit of Jesus would not let them go that way, but sent them another way. It's the spirit of Jesus, Jesus in action, Jesus carrying out his work. So some would say, even though the popular name is the Acts of the Apostles, that it could be either the Acts of the Spirit or the fullest would be the Acts of Jesus accomplished by his spirit in his apostles. Yeah, that would be your complete name. A little long though, right? <laughs> so, uh, But that would be a good full name. Uh, another thing that's uh, set forth here in uh, his reign is that this whole uh, passage is framed by his ascension. You see that in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, which, by the way, the end of Luke is, deals with the same thing, of the ascension of Christ. But you see, at the beginning of this introduction and the end of it, uh, the, it's the ascension. This is what it's about. The whole thing is framed by the ascension. And then the... Angels want to frame the whole of their future ministry, the whole of their vision for their ministry with his ascension and his coming. Uh, actually, Luke spends more time talking about the conversation than he actually does the ascension itself. But it's interesting that the angels immediately point them to, hey, okay, don't set your eyes up there He's going to come in the same way. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and that's all you need to know. You need to get on with it and what you were told to do. Uh, but your whole life is now framed with the ascension and the coming of Christ, which points to his, uh, his reign. So this passage presents us then that we're in a new time. This is Jesus' time. This is Messiah time. This is Messiah's rule. This is A.D. indeed, Jesus managing the world in his blessing and his judgment. The sign of the cloud that we see here is not just, you know, a convenient cumulus cloud that comes along and catches him up, but we're to think of this as the glory cloud, the cloud that Israel saw of glory, the cloud that came down when Jesus was transfigured before the three disciples and his clothes and face became like lightning and the cloud came upon them and they were actually in the midst of the presence of God in the cloud. That's the cloud that took him up and it means that he was totally enveloped in God's presence and glory in that cloud. And we're made to think of this fantastic passage in Daniel 7. 
Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what's happening here in Acts 1. The glory cloud taking him up before the Ancient of Days. A.D. indeed, right? Yes, this is the time of Christ. This is the time of Christ's reign. And very interesting that uh, this begins, as as, uh, Jesus says, you will begin in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where he was rejected, will be the place where witness breaks out about him. That's wonderful irony. The place where all the hatred of mankind was focused is going to be the first place where he is exalted and held forth to all the nations as being the one who is now Lord of heaven and earth. Pretty shocking if you were part of the crucifixion, right? And we all were. And that's why it pierced them. He said, you who, who crucified, the one you, you crucified, he is Lord. And you see it poured out in the Spirit. Amazing then that in this place of God's historical reign, he's now announcing the reign of Christ as now the way God is reigning from Jerusalem. See? God is reigning from Jerusalem by Christ reigning from heaven and the whole world. It shows how thoroughly Jewish it was from the beginning. It's always strange, and I mentioned this before, but a few years back, uh, a rabbi uh, in Dallas said, in hearing about the organization Jews for Jesus, said, there's no such thing as a Jew for Jesus, right? There's no such thing as a Jew for Jesus. And that's ironic because at first there was nothing but Jews for Jesus, right? That's all there were. Paul's a Jew for Jesus. The disciples were 120 people in the upper room, Jews for Jesus. 3,000 people converted, Jews for Jesus. Not only that, they couldn't initially conceive of Gentiles for Jesus. They had no concept for that. He had to appear in a vision to Peter and offer up all these unclean animals and say, eat the unclean animals, which just shot Peter to the, made his socks rot right there, you know, that I would be doing this. And he says, here's a symbol. You go and now have fellowship with the Gentiles. And as he's speaking to the Gentiles, the spirits poured out on them, just like uh, the Jews at Pentecost. And he got the message. Oh, oh, you mean you could just be a Gentile and be a Christian? You could be a Gentile and belong to Messiah. So this this lordship of Christ had this incredible initial Jewish flavor because it is to the manifestation of the one God of heaven and earth that made all things and manifested his rule in Israel and now is manifesting his rule in his son, the Messiah of Israel. But now he's not just Messiah of Israel as he indicates Uh, It's to go to the end of the earth. And so we read in Ephesians 4 that 
uh, he ascended that he might fill all things. This ascension is not an absence in the most profound sense of the word. He ascended, Paul says in Ephesians, so that he might fill all things. So that his sovereign presence would pervade every particle of the universe. That's what ascension means. Or as NIV puts Ephesians 1, that he might fill everything in every way with his sovereign presence. And so... Uh, this Lord Jesus, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Glorious kingdom of Jesus that is now reigning over all things. And in this description, brief here, that he will come in the way he went. And yet we read in other places, it's going to be an amazing coming when he comes. He is going to come in glorious cloud. But you read pieces of it. Revelation 1, with the clouds he will come. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. We read in Thessalonians that he will bring all of those who've died. All believers will be brought with him. To have their bodies restored. And we read in Second Thessalonians 1 that he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on all those who do not, do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And he will be glorified in his saints and they'll marvel at him, those who believe in him. Yeah, he's coming again because it's A.D. now. It's the time of Jesus, the time of his reign, the time of his governing all things, and the time where he will uh, consummate all things by his power. And all the world will know, all the world will know in that final day that this has been A.D. (laughs) This has been the time of Christ. So pervasive that Paul uh, could say when he's speaking to the Athenians, And he's talking in general terms about the creation and how God's manifested himself in the creation. And he says, yeah, all this is going on this way. But he says, now he's saying repent. He's telling everybody to repent because he's fixed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given us assurance by raising him from the dead. He puts that out there with these pagan people saying, repent. Because he's already picked his man and he's going to bring judgment into this world by this man. And he's shown it because he's already raised him from the dead. <laughs> of course, that was, they hadn't quite heard anything like that uh, on the Areopagus before. Uh, but this was the glorious message that went forth. Well, uh, for us, we say, hallelujah, you know, that God reigns in this way. Uh, we... Praise Him that because His rule pervades every part of our lives, that He will bless you, He will attend you, He watches over you, He works everything for your good, He is forming you and changing you and enriching you and growing you in His love and joy and peace, and He's enabling you in all uh, that you do in word and deed to bear witness to Him. His reign means absolutely everything in your day-to-day life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your parenting, in your work, in everything you do. 
because he reigns. We'll speak to this a little more in a minute. But then secondly, there's not only the hope of his reign, but the hope in the power of his spirit. And this, uh, of course, is set forth in this passage in uh, several. In fact, what's really interesting is the, the connection between kingdom and the spirit. Because in verse 3, it talks about how he had spoken to them about the kingdom of God. And then he gives part of maybe this is the essence of that kingdom or the, the, the heart of that kingdom, saying that the Holy Spirit uh, will baptize you soon. And then interesting also that when they ask about the kingdom in verse 6, he first says, well, you don't know, you're not going to know because the Father has kept this from anyone. So don't inquire because you'll never know exactly the time of this final kingdom. Uh, But here's what you need to know about the kingdom. And he speaks about power, which has to do with kingdom. Power coming by the Spirit. That's the manifestation of the kingdom for you now. That's what you're going to know of the kingdom right now. It is the manifestation of the Spirit uh, and the power of the Spirit. And so the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is shown in the person and work of Christ, what he accomplished in his death and resurrection, and it has as its initial uh, fulfillment the pouring out of the Spirit himself. And so we see that the kingdom of God is a reign of grace in people's lives. It's a reign that is a saving reign, a rescuing reign, a reign that brings His gracious rule into our hearts. It's a restoring reign that is beginning to restore us as in our relationships, restoring us in our character, restoring us in community, and ultimately will restore the whole earth. That's the reign of God. A gracious, saving, rescuing rain that is poured out in the Holy Spirit. And so, it's not only as they are asking about Israel. You see, they still are thinking in political terms. Uh, Even on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples are telling Jesus, we thought he was going to be the one to restore Israel, but then he got killed. You know? That was their kind of response to Jesus. And Jesus said, well, don't, don't you really know what the prophets say, what the Psalms say about the, the uh, Messiah? And goes in to begin teaching them about that. And you see that same thing right here as they're asking, well, is this the time? Because they thought that Israel is going to be restored. Uh, the, they're going to be set free from their enemies God's going to set up his rule, and then maybe the nations will flow to Israel at that point. And, and uh, that's not going to be the way it, it works. Actually, that was a centripetal force that was kind of looked at in the Old Testament. Even now, they thought that that would be the case. Israel would be the hub. But he says, no, this is going to be centrifugal, okay? This is going to move out. This is going to go away and, and pervade the nations. And it's going to be gradual, and it's going to be of the Spirit, and it's going to be about grace and, and new character uh, and that kind of change. Uh, as he spoke later, that times of refreshing in chapter 21 already have come upon <clears throat> the uh, people of God. 
So here is interesting in uh, Romans 14, 17. I love this statement by Paul. He's talking about eating and drinking and what you should eat and not eat and all those kinds of things. But then he has this statement. He says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. That's not the real important thing. He said, the, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's the kingdom of God. Talk about God's reign. Talk about God's rule. Talk about God's pervasive sovereignty and Jesus' sovereignty that fills the world. What's that all about? It's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit that is poured out upon His people. His reign of His new character and new life pervading the lives of His people to change them and to change their community to be then a light of change for the world. That's the reign of God. That's the kingdom of God. And a vital part of this power, obviously, is that we are made to be witnesses for Him. And though this centers in the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles in early church, it certainly extends and in them and continuing from them and what they've written, we become witnesses as well. And I want to give the broadest stroke, as Brian did in his section on this in Colossians, <clears throat> that your witness is for uh, your witness in, is uh, bound up in everything that you do and say as the people of God. It's not just, although it includes your speaking, it includes everything you say to unbelievers. And it includes when you specifically speak to them about the gospel. It, it has everything to do with everything you are. And so you and I are to think ourselves always in everything we do, in the home, in the community, uh, within the body of Christ, we are always bearing witness to Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit's work is there for. He says... The power of the Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses. Like the definition of who you are now as believers. Now, I don't mean that to be in a narrow sense of only when you literally speak the gospel to somebody are you a witness. I'm saying the whole of your life now is stamped with witness. They look at your life. They look at your hope. They look at how you handle difficulty. They look at how you struggle through and work through issues in your marriage as you rub shoulders with them. They, they look at your enjoyment of creation or your enjoyment of culture and what can that teach them because you do it in honor of, of God. You do it out of adoration to God. You even then are witness as you're seeking to expose your adoration of God in all of your life to the culture of death in this world. In your hospitality, in your kindness, in everything that you do, in the shalom and hope that you exhibit in the midst of trial. So everything is under the category of witness by the power of the Holy Spirit, including this here. This is a witness to the world that this is what life's all about. Yes, we put aside a morning of our lives and we devote to be with the people of God, to adore this God, to learn from this God, to be formed as the people of God because that's what life's all about. 
We're bearing witness. You never stop bearing witness. Children, you never stop bearing witness. You never, you never are taken out of that place from God. You're, you're called. And brothers and sisters, the Spirit empowers us for this. And we should be encouraged, encouraged by this, that it takes away both our despair and our excuse, giving us hope that the Christ that has the Spirit without measure is giving us the Spirit. The Christ that has the Spirit with unlimited resources and capacity pours out the Spirit. The same Spirit that enabled Jesus to accomplish salvation is now poured out on us to bring about the application of that salvation and the working of that salvation out in the world. We love, I'm afraid I and we many times love despair. We love it because if we can hold on to despair, we, we don't even mind holding on to despair if you just let me hold on to my sin too. You know? Like despair becomes a friend when it can absolve me of responsibility. But the Spirit strikes down despair and the Spirit strikes down excuse and the Spirit brings about all of the resources that enable us to live trusting God for forgiveness, being accepted and, and knowing His favor and living out a new life and a new strength in the Spirit. So, the whole of our lives, as we see here, are to be framed with this pervasive sovereignty of Jesus over all things in every aspect of our lives and the rich, unlimited outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our lives to enable us to be witnesses until He comes with this host of mighty angels in fire and all of those who've died to come with them and gather us all together and bring about the final chapter in the renewal of all things. Because this is A.D. (laughs) This is Christ's time. This is Christ's world. It is Christ's reign. And we, by His grace, can manifest the beauty and glory of that reign in our own lives. Let us pray. Lord, we praise You for Your goodness and grace to us in Christ. We praise you for his reign, that one who died for us now reigns over all things. We thank you that everything that happens in our lives is now defined by Jesus' hand. It is Jesus' hand that that brings these about, or Jesus' hands that has allowed this, and Jesus' hand that will bring about His good purpose, and no one, nothing can stop His hand because He's over every rule and authority and power and dominion in heaven and earth. Nothing can stay your work of salvation in individual lives, in your people, in the outgoing of the gospel in this world. Oh, Lord, give us new hope remove despair and excuse from us and give us grace, Lord, to live with great expectation of what you will do in our lives and what you will do with your gospel in this world. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.